Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. I'm handing over the mic today to my colleague, Kevin Hurden. He's got an interesting story about an aspect of the Olympics in Tokyo, and you won't want to miss it. Enjoy, and I'll be back. The 2020 Olympics have officially begun. Except you've probably realized it's actually 2021. Things are definitely a bit out of joint with these Olympics. No one seems particularly happy at the moment. Most notably, the very people hosting the party. I have never seen anything like this in all my days studying the Olympic Games. That's Olympic scholar Jules Boykoff. The opposition to the Olympics inside of Japan is vehement. Depending on the poll that you look at, anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of the population do not want the Olympics this summer. With rising COVID rates in Tokyo and the Delta variant spreading fast globally, it's no surprise Tokyo residents want the games gone. And COVID isn't the only thing hurting the Olympics' popularity this year. There are also complaints about the International Olympic Committee's crackdown on protest, accusations of racial bias, and the director of the opening ceremony was fired the day before it kicked off because of a Holocaust joke he made in 1998. It's all stacking up, and it's casting a dark cloud over what's supposed to be a global celebration of the Olympic spirit. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, And this is The Take. When we decided to do this episode about the intersection of politics and the Olympics, Jules Boykoff was an obvious choice. He's written several books about this, one called Activism and the Olympics, and he's a former Olympian himself. We started with the elephant in the room. Two South African soccer players became the first athletes inside the Olympic Village to test positive for COVID. An alternate for the USA women's gymnastics team tested positive for the virus. One staff on the Czech Olympic team tested positive after landing in Tokyo. The still ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Last year, we were in the beginning stages of a pandemic. And everyone wondered, what were we going to do with this Olympics? And the organizers made a calculated bet that said, let's not cancel, let's move it back a year, bet on the future, and hope that things will be better then. So my first question to you is, on the scale of disastrous to that was a savvy bet, how did this pay off for them? Well, it verges certainly more toward disastrous. It hasn't been a very clean and clear rollout, that's for sure. It's definitely the anachronistically named Tokyo 2020 Games. They're sticking with that fiction. Yeah, actually, keying in on that, it's actually going to feel more like a 2020 Games than I think anyone could have imagined. There's going to be a lot of restrictions on what even the athletes can do while they're competing because of COVID, right? Right. So there's both the Olympic restrictions and then there's the wider restrictions on the entire country, really. In Tokyo, what's growing isn't excitement, but lockdown measures. And not just for athletes, but for officials, the world's media, and especially the Japanese people. 
they have put in place the bubble. While in Tokyo, they will function in a bubble within a bubble to further minimize exposure to COVID-19 risks. But already we're seeing cracks and fissures. For example, there have been Uber Eats that have been called by athletes and people living inside of the Olympic bubble who just freely come in and hand over food. That has raised concerns. A lot of the bus drivers who will be taking the athletes from venue to venue, competitions and practices and so on, will not be vaccinated because of the relatively slow rollout. So there are really still more questions in a lot of ways than there are answers. It really seems like this will be the no fun Olympics. There will be no fans in the stadiums. Athletes are more or less isolated from their families and from each other. They need to wear masks at all times, except when eating, drinking, competing, or sleeping. They really say that. Mm -hmm. And they're even trying to crack down on people cheering their teammates on. I can't even imagine the Olympics under those circumstances. Yeah, those are a lot of really good examples of how things will be different with these Olympics. No fun does capture it pretty well. You know, the Olympics build themselves as this opportunity to meet people around the world, to get to know other cultures and so on. That's not going to happen. In fact, it's advised that you don't do that if you're in the Olympic bubble. Stay to yourself, stay with people on your team, wear your mask, uh, don't talk too loudly or cheer too loudly. It's hardly the sort of Olympics that we've been told about in the past. It's very transactional, these Olympics, the super transactional games. And, you know, it does point us to the bigger picture transactional nature of the Olympics, which is the fact that it's a huge money juggernaut. You've written extensively about the real cost to the people and to the countries that host these games. And I don't think you're going to see a starker example of a country getting hit than Japan. I mean, they've spent upwards of $30 billion on a huge stadiums and arenas that are going to be empty. I mean, they could have put them in sound stages, right? You're absolutely right. How bad is this for Japan? It's quite bad, especially if you think back to 2013 when Tokyo was originally bidding on the Olympics. And they said in their bid documents that the Olympics would only cost $7.3 billion. Well, like you said, today it's closer to around $30 billion. And the postponement did have a little bit to do with that, a few billion dollars tacked on. But already, according to an audit by the Japanese government, the cost had basically escalated to four times their original estimation. The Olympics are a huge money machine. The question is, for whom do they boom? And the answer tends to be the International Olympic Committee, who does really well out of the Olympics, the broadcasters, and also well-connected political and economic elites in the host city who can leverage their relationships and squeeze some money out of the situation. But, you know, who's left out of that equation? All too often, it's the everyday people of the host city who don't tend to benefit at all. Quick aside, we are going to have an episode coming up in a few weeks about exactly that, how the Olympics affect the everyday people in host cities. But back to Jules. And it's even more stark in Tokyo because you won't have some tourist dollars at least to help float the Tokyo economic boat a little bit. And so it's much more stark than usual where that money is actually going. And it tends to flow up. You know, in the past, I've called it trickle-up economics. And I think this year's Olympics is a prime example of that. Another thing riling up the Olympics this year, the very idea of activism. The outcry revolves around this IOC guideline called Rule 50. In January 2020, the IOC strengthened Rule 50 to really crack down on all forms of protest. 
Rule 50 in the Olympic Charter states that no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. I've been following the controversy for months now, and the decision sparked a fierce backlash. After months of criticism from athletes, activists, and scholars like Jules, the IOC was forced to walk back the ban. Well, at least a little bit. Now they've adjusted this rule just a little bit to say that athletes can talk politics when they're speaking to the media during press conferences and at team meetings, which, by the way, were places where they could already do that. But they can also do this on the field of play prior to the start of competition, so long as what they do is not disruptive and it doesn't target specific individuals or countries or organizations or the dignity of those (laughs) groups. So there are some tiny openings, but still, you cannot have acts of dissent on the medal stand, for example, and you cannot have acts of dissent during competition. So if you're a runner and you're crossing the finish line, you can't put your arms in a certain fashion that might be a symbol of resistance in the country where you, you come from. And so some has changed, but not that much has changed. Were you surprised that they caved at all? In a way, no, because we're living in this incredible moment, the athlete empowerment era, where athletes are speaking out and they're linked to vibrant social movements, whether it's around racial justice, and we're living in the extended Black Lives Matter moment, no doubt, or whether it's around justice and equality for pay equity. We've seen the U.S. women's national team of soccer very outspoken about this. Here's Megan Rapino, the part-time captain of the team. If it can happen to me, with the brightest light shining on us at all times, it can and it does happen to every person who is marginalized by gender. We're living in the extended Me Too moment, and there's been a lot of abuse that has been in the Olympic sphere, thinking of gymnastics and swimming, perhaps, in particular. The culture of abuse in British gymnastics, saying athletes are treated like pieces of meat but not just them. And athletes are very much tapped into this. And so the IOC probably wanted to get out in front of it a little bit. But the problem for the International Olympic Committee, and I think the real reason why they have been slow to open up the rules, is because coming down the pipeline here, only some six months after Tokyo concludes, are the ever-controversial Beijing Games of 2022, the Winter Olympics there. And there's all sorts of reasons why athletes might protest there. A coalition of 180 human rights groups is urging governments to not send their delegations over reported human rights abuses in China. If you're a Muslim athlete, certainly you're not very keen on the way that ethnic Muslim Uyghurs have been treated in Xinjiang province in China. If you support Tibet, you've had a long-time grievance against China for that. Or if you care about democracy in general, you probably are concerned with what's happening in Hong Kong. And because this is so clearly coming down the road, the International Olympic Committee has long had an incentive to keep Rule 50 in place. They changed it a little bit, but for me, that's only because we've seen outspoken athletes having the courage to give their political views in the public sphere. And the International Olympic Committee knew that these athletes have power and these athletes are actually what make the Olympic Games the Games. When you think about protests at the Olympics, the first image that always comes to mind is 1968. I mean, that's when John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fists into the air on the podium. And it's not just the most famous act of protest in Olympic history. It's arguably the most iconic image in all of Olympic history. It's like among them. 
Yet now that is explicitly banned. I mean, how does that ban affect the way you look back at that moment? Yeah, well, I mean, I would even up the ante a little bit further and say that it's not just one of the most iconic moments in Olympic history, but world history. I mean, if you travel the world, as many of your listeners surely have, and pop their heads into apartment complexes and looked on the walls, you'll see posters of Smith and Carlos with their fists in the air. The International Olympic Committee at that time put a ton of pressure on the United States Olympic Committee to give them the boot from the Olympic Village, and that's exactly what the USOC did. And it's only recently that they've been sort of recuperated in the mainstream, if you will. And in fact, even the official Olympic channel celebrated Carlos and Smith as legends for their epic descent. They wanted to make a statement, and they did on the biggest stage. They this called it one, one of the, the most, most iconic, iconic moments, moments in the history of the, history of the modern, modern Olympic, Olympic Games, Olympic just like games. we did. This memorable stand was a shock for the Games in a very sensitive moment of history. So it's kind of ironic that they're being celebrated right now for their very act of courage on the medal stand that the IOC at the same time is saying nobody else could possibly do because it would bring politics into the Olympic Games. There's a big problem there. Yeah. So you're saying that the Olympics is fully aware of how iconic that moment is. Their own marketing materials use that moment while at the same time they're banning that explicit type of speech. I think hypocrisy is definitely the word. Absolutely. I, I think it. you're right. hundred percent. Wow. I mean, so you've done a lot of research. I mean, this is one of your fields of expertise, if not your main field of expertise. Protests and the Olympics go way back, right? No doubt about it. One of my favorite stories has to be the 1906 Olympics in Athens, when an Irish athlete by the name of Peter O'Connor did one of the most iconic acts of political dissent ever. He won a medal, and he had the disfortune of having to participate for Britain because he was an ardent Irish nationalist, and yet Britain was ruling Ireland at the time. And so he arrived at the Olympics in Athens, read in a program that he would be forced to be an athlete for Britain, and that just fired him up tremendously. When he actually won his medal and he was at the award ceremony and the Union Jack was hoisted up the flagpole, Peter O'Connor ran over there and shimmied up the flagpole, yanked down the Union Jack flag and held an Aaron Gobrog Ireland Forever flag and waved it in the air while his friend Con Leahy and his other Irish buddies stood at the bottom of the flagpole so the Greek police couldn't get him. I mean, what an incredible act. So that was 1906, well over a century ago. So yes, the Olympics have a history of athlete activism for sure. Yeah, and just to be clear, the Olympics were reborn in 1896. So that incident was like 10 years after the Olympics really started. So it goes all the way back. Yes. And I wonder if there's a broader idea there. One of the rationales for the Rule 50 ban is that you want to keep politics out of the Olympics. But the Olympics are inherently political. Anytime you get all the nations of the world, which are political nations, coming together, there's going to be politics. There's going to be stuff from the outside world that comes in. I mean, sometimes it's not just athletes that are protesting. There's many Olympics have had governments themselves boycotting or coming under protest. What about countries themselves boycotting the games? Yeah, the idea that the Olympics are not political is a very convenient myth for the International Olympic Committee. But anybody who looks at the way the Olympics are structured for more than like three seconds realizes that the games are eminently political. 
I mean, just take the opening ceremonies where all the countries walk in by country. This, of course, stokes political nationalism. They could walk in by sport. I mean, you could have all the swimmers from around the world walk in together. In fact, you could argue that that would better embrace some of the spirit of internationalism behind the Olympics. But nope, they have them walk in by country. And so obviously, these are all political gestures. And, you know, I've been doing some research recently on the 1936 Olympics, the notorious games in Berlin under Adolf Hitler. And it was clear that the IOC knew exactly what they were getting into with Hitler. The writing was on the wall. There were anti-Jewish signs and laws everywhere. And in fact, then president of the International Olympic Committee, a guy named Henri Baylet Latour, put pressure on Hitler to get rid of the political signage around Berlin. So you can't tell me that the Olympics aren't political. They intervened in the politics of the country. And so I think when somebody tries to argue that the Olympics aren't political, it's basically just an indicator that they're milking the Olympic machine with both hands, which is to say they're making money off the Olympics in some way and they want to keep it going. In terms of Rule 50 now, they must know at some level this is unenforceable, right? I mean, once you open up the door a crack to allowing free expression, you can't say, but you can only do it if you stand over there. Mm -hmm. That's not what protest is all about. Well, and on top of that, the penalties are very vague. They're nebulous at best. And there's only a tiny little portion of the new guidelines that talk about penalties for athletes. That's a recipe for arbitrary power in a lot of ways. If the penalties were clearly delineated, athletes would very much know what they're getting into. But not having clear penalties actually opens the door for additional stress. So we're approaching a really fascinating moment. And that's one of the things that I'm most excited about with these Olympics is the possibility of athletes standing up for social and racial justice all around the Olympic Games. Right. And you talk about selective enforcement. You talk about racial justice. There have been a few controversies recently that I'd love to ask you about. Accusations of racism aimed at the Olympic governing bodies in the past few weeks. We had swim caps designed for natural black hair were banned. The African-American sprinter Shakari Richardson was suspended because she tested positive for marijuana. Two Namibian women were banned from competing because of high testosterone levels. How do you expect this to play out at the Games, given their track record? First of all, there is a very clear pattern at work there. It doesn't take a critical race theory expert to figure out what's going on. You add to those examples Gwen Berry, who qualified recently in the hammer throw for the Olympics. And during the ceremony for the hammer throw, she turned away from the flag and she held above her head this T-shirt that said activist athlete on it. And wow, did she get a lot of pushback, not just from people at Fox News where you'd expect it, but also from sitting members of Congress who said she should be kicked off the team. Here's Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw. We don't need any more activist athletes. She should be removed from the team. The entire point of the Olympic team is to represent the United States of America. Talk about irony. These people say they care about the Constitution. She exercises her freedom of speech and expression, and, and this is what she gets. All these rules affect people of color in ways that are different than they affect white athletes. So, I mean, it's obviously racially targeted, a lot of what we're seeing. And I'm glad to see journalists and other athletes and, and academics even standing up and asking these big questions because the Olympics have long had a racism problem and they're rearing their head yet again here at these games. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the vague 
rules uh, in terms of these protests and the history of selective enforcement, I think that is a recipe for disaster because some of the very people that have the most to protest about might be the harshest punished by the system as it stands. So I think this could be a real problem. Right. Okay, let me ask you one more thing. All of this stuff, stacking up, stacking up, stacking up. Why are we even having these Olympics? Well, more and more people are asking that question. Why are we having these Olympics? Some of those people are asking because we're in a pandemic. That's a legitimate basis for asking. Others are asking the question because the pandemic has actually allowed us to slow down and see some of the problems that are ingrained in the Olympics. For me, the Olympics are very much at a crisis point right now, not just because of Tokyo and coronavirus, but also because of Beijing coming down the road, an obvious human rights violator. And so if the Olympics aren't going to seriously slow their role and think about what they're doing right now, it's hard to believe really that they ever will, unless there's some major leverage points that develop that can get the Olympics to change. And by that, I mean, organized athletes could be one of those leverage points. The United Nations could get its act together and finally start to exert some pressure to do the right thing, or some kind of outside entity that's not associated with the games, an independent group that could measure the accountability of the Olympics and push back when they don't live up to their promises. We're living in a moment right now that really pushes us in that direction. So let's hope we finally get there. And that's The Take. As we mentioned earlier, this isn't it for our Olympics coverage. As the games end, we'll have another episode that picks up where Jules left off and investigates the legacy of the Olympics on the cities that host it. Keep an ear out for that story on August 9th. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with me, Kevin Hurton, Dina Kisba, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Ney Alvarez, and Malika Bilal. Aya Elmi-Lake is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is the Take's story editor. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back.